Section 19 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 5, Florence 1, Savonarola by E. Armstrong, Part 4. Henceforth, the interest of Savonarola's career is rather ecclesiastical than political. The attack upon him is directed not from Florence, but from Rome. Nevertheless, the scourge which was manufactured in the Vatican was composed of several strands. Strands social and constitutional, moral and religious, personal and political all twisting in and out in the rope-walk of Italian diplomacy. Alexander VI has rightly left so terrible a repute that every act of his is exposed to a sinister interpretation. He had perhaps no positive virtues, but he was not entirely a conglomerate of vices. Abstemious in meat and drink, he had an equable temper. A healthy animal, he was not irritated by personalities. Scandal has few terrors for those who habitually live in sin. Alexander was not cruel, if his immediate gratification were not concerned. In his official duties, he had been regular and hard-working. He possessed a perfect knowledge of the etiquette and business of the Vatican, nor were the ecclesiastical interests of the Christian world neglected. It would be rash to assume that Alexander VI was actuated by personal hostility to Savonarola, although such hostility would have been only human. Under the zealous popes of the Catholic revival, Savonarola would have met with less consideration had their ideas and his been found in conflict. Alexander VI was fully conscious that he would not a second time escape so lightly from the consequences of a French invasion. His personal enemy, Cardinal Della Rovere, was influential at the French court, and together with Cardinal Brissonnet, would gladly make the Pope's simoniacal election a pretext for his deposition. He was thus the natural ally of Ludovico Ulmoro, who had everything to fear from French vengeance. The duke's brother, Cardinal Ascanio Sforza, was still the leading figure at the Vatican. The refusal of Florence to abandon the French alliance and join the Italian League kept the peninsula in a condition of nervous agitation. It was known that Savonarola's party looked forward to a new invasion. It was guessed that he was himself corresponding with the French court. Thus, the Medici plots were hatched at Rome, but the Pope had no special interest in the Medici. Ludovico, as has been seen, was definitely opposed to a Medician restoration. Alexander VI, on the other hand, would use the Medici, as he would use any other instrument, to embarrass a government which was a standing danger to himself, although it might be impolitic needlessly to exasperate the Republic, for this might only hasten an invasion. Savonarola's relations to the Pope have hitherto been left unnoticed, because until the summer of 1497 they had little effect upon his action. They had opened with the brief of July 21, 
1495, which summoned the friar to Rome, and they reached a climax in the brief of excommunication. The points of attack were the alleged gift of prophecy, the public invectives against Rome which brought the papacy into contempt, and the artifices by which the separation of the Tuscan congregation had been obtained. Savonarola defended himself point by point with great ability. He excused himself from visiting Rome on the plea of weak health, which was forcing him to abandon the pulpit, and of the danger from Milanese assassins on the road. He submitted his doctrines to the judgment of the Church, referring the Pope to his Compendium Revelationum for the defense of prophecy, his holiness, he constantly repeated, had been deceived by the slanders of his enemies. Alexander vacillated. He was pressed on the one side by Ludovico il Moro and the friar's Florentine enemies, on the other by the government and by the several Florentine envoys, all personally devoted to Savonarola. He was, perhaps, genuinely unwilling to take a decisive step against one whose holiness he respected. For sinners are not unable to value saints. In September 1495, he adopted an obvious method of removing the Dominican from Florence by reuniting the Tuscan to the Lombard congregation. In answer to Savonarola's remonstrances, he abandoned this intention. But in November 1496, he ordered the union of all the Tuscan-Dominican convents under a new Tusco-Roman congregation. Even this brief contained no patent evidence of hostility. The papal consent to the independence of the Tuscan congregation had been won almost by a trick. The congregation had not proved an entire success, owing to the resistance of the larger Tuscan towns. Even the union of the convent at Prato had only just been effected, and not without difficulty. The smallness of the congregation virtually confined Savonarola's ministrations to Florence, which was most unusual. No previous hostility existed between the Roman and Tuscan Dominicans, like that which animated the latter against their brethren of Lombardy. The new vicar-general, the general, and the protector of the order were all of them Savonarola's friends. The Roman authorities might reasonably have doubted whether his temporary withdrawal from the city would prove an unmixed evil, either for Florence or for himself. To this brief, Savonarola's reply from the pulpit was almost a declaration of war, for he hinted, not obscurely, that there were limits to obedience, that if a brief of excommunication were brought into the city on a spearhead, he should know how to reply and that his answer would make many a face turn pale. His apology of the brethren of San Marco was a formal appeal from the Pope to the public. Yet, of Savonarola's resistance, Alexander took little notice, until he felt assured that there were signs of a reaction within Florence. Then, he launched his brief of excommunication, which was solemnly read between lighted torches in the Florentine churches, on the evening of June 18, 1497. To the clauses of the brief which condemned Savonarola for disobedience in not visiting Rome and for doctrinal heterodoxy, 
he could readily reply that his excuses had been accepted and that his doctrines had been submitted to the judgment of the church in further proof of his orthodoxy he now composed his most elaborate work the triumphus crucis a noble tract on which his reputation as a theological writer mainly rests the gist however of the brief was the friar's resistance to the tusco-roman congregation to which charge a reply was not so easy if the pope possessed the power to separate the tuscan from the lombard congregation in spite of the protests of the latter he could clearly unite the tuscan to the roman but savonarola was not daunted in letters addressed to the public he opposed a non volumus in the form of a non possumus protesting that it was not in his power to compel his brethren and that they were fully justified in their resistance his answer implied that the pope had no powers in such a matter of discipline if his command were contrary to the wish of those affected he forgot that in fourteen ninety three the union of st catherine's at pisa with his own congregation had been effected against the declared wish of the great majority of the brethren the brief after all seemed likely to fall harmless it was doubtful how far the pope was yet in earnest more than a month had elapsed between the dating and the publication of the sentence on june fourteen occurred the mysterious murder of the duke of gandia alexander in his passionate grief and remorse initiated a project of reform such as savonarola would have welcomed it was a moment of strange concessions the excommunicated man wrote a letter of condolence on the death of the pope's bastard tenderly urging him to lead a new life while alexander assured the florentine ambassador that the publication of the brief had never been intended the belief was current that he would willingly withdraw it if only the friar would come to rome from july fourteen ninety seven onwards until the spring the florentine government and its envoys pleaded ceaselessly for pardon testimonials of the prior's orthodoxy were forwarded by the brethren of san marco and by five hundred leading citizens savonarola himself in october addressed a humble letter to the pope praying for reconciliation for six months he never preached the excitement both at rome and florence had subsided on christmas day savonarola committed his first act of open disobedience he celebrated mass at san marco and then led a solemn procession round the square this act scandalized many zealous supporters but from rome it provoked no violent protest the pope's interest was political he would withdraw his brief for an equivalent the adhesion of florence to the league on february eleventh fourteen ninety eight savonarola broke silence he preached in san marco on the invalidity of the excommunication declaring that whosoever believed in its validity was a heretic that the righteous prince or good priest was merely an instrument of god for the people's government but that when grace was withdrawn he was no instrument but broken iron that if any pope had spoken against charity he too was broken iron if o lord he cried 
I should seek to be absolved from this excommunication, let me be sent to hell. I should shrink from seeking absolution, as from mortal sin. This sermon contains a summary of his correspondence with the Pope. Alexander, he concludes, resembled a podesta of Brescia, who always agreed with the last speaker. He was like the king at chess, who moved backwards and forwards from square to square whenever check was called. These utterances, followed by others fully as audacious, forced Alexander to a resolution. He demanded, under pain of interdict, that either the government must place Savonarola in his custody, subject to a promise that he should not be hurt, or at least confine him to his convent and prevent his preaching. The envoys assured the Signoria that the Pope was now in earnest, and after much debate, Savonarola was ordered not to preach. On receiving this decision, the friar preached his farewell sermon. He was willing to obey the state, for he could not force virtue upon the city against its will. This sermon contained his fiercest diatribe against the Roman court. None could misunderstand the allusions to Alexander's concubines and children. It was time now, cried the preacher, to appeal from the Pope to Christ. The power ecclesiastic was ruining the church. It was, therefore, no longer power ecclesiastic, but power infernal, power of Satan. Henceforth, if Savonarola was silent, he was not idle. In his seclusion, he prepared an appeal to a general council and drafted letters calling upon the European princes to depose the pope, who was no pope, for his election was simoniacal. He was a heretic and unbeliever, since he disbelieved in the existence of God, the deepest depth of unbelief. Had his cause been as strong in Florence as of yore, had succeeding Signoria been as bold as that of January 1498, a formal schism must have followed, and who can say that the revolt would have been limited to Florence, or that it would not have overstepped the frontier of discipline and doctrine? But the issue was to be decided by internal rather than by external politics, and the final conflict was provoked by circumstances almost accidental. Savonarola's brethren were still preaching, and perhaps exaggerating, the apocalyptic features of his doctrine. From prophecy to miracle was but a step. An appeal to supernatural agency became almost a form of speech. It was boldly asserted that miracle, if necessary, would support prophecy. At length, on March 25, 1498, a Franciscan in Santa Croce threw down the challenge. He would pass through fire if Savonarola would do likewise. He knew that he should himself be burnt, but the Dominican would also perish, and the people would be freed from its delusion. Savonarola was averse to forcing a miracle from God. The court of Rome expressed its abhorrence at this tempting of the divine power. The government, however, yielded to popular clamor. It was willing to clutch at any remedy for the civil conflict, which was wasting the life of Florence. Above all, the Piagnoni were eager for the ordeal. 
the more zealous offered to enter the fire in full reliance on a miracle, while those who wavered thought that the prophet's success would render his cause triumphant, or his failure justify secession. Neither Savonarola nor the Franciscan challenger Francesco da Puglia were the champions of their orders. Domenico da Pescia, Savonarola's right hand, represented the Dominicans, and Fra Rondinelli, the Franciscans. The painful tale of the ordeal is too well known to bear retelling in detail. The Franciscans were gathered in the loggia, and the huge pile was laid in the great piazza when the Dominicans entered in procession two by two amid lines of torch-bearers, followed by Fra Domenico bearing the host and his prior bearing the crucifix. Their chant, Let God arise and let his enemies be scattered, was caught up by the faithful on every side. The square was free but for the armed bands of the government and the groups of the leading supporters of each party. But every window and every roof was dark with eager onlookers hungering for miracles or horrors. Then followed the unseemly wrangles between the orders, Franciscans insisting that Fra Domenico must be stripped of his robes for fear they should be enchanted, Dominicans refusing to send their champion to the flames without the host. Then came the drenching thunderstorm and their wrangles again till eventide, when the Signoria dismissed the friars to their convents. The Dominican procession reached San Marco amid the yells and threats of a disappointed mob. The populace, long wavering, had made up its mind. Some were angry at their own credulity, others at the proposal to endanger the Holy Sacrament. Many were disgusted at losing a spectacle for which they had waited wet and weary. Others had hoped that the Dominicans' death by fire would purify the state from faction. Savonarola preached to his disciples that he had won the victory. But in their hearts they doubted it, for they gathered to defend the convent in expectation of an onslaught. This was not slow in coming. On the following day, Palm Sunday, the Compagnacci shouted down a Dominican preacher in the cathedral and, amid cries of, Tu San Marco, led the mob against the convent. Valori escaped to rally adherents round his palace and to attack the enemy from without. But the assailants were too quick. Valori reached his house with difficulty and hid himself. His wife, looking from an upper window, was killed by a crossbow. Then came officials of the Signoria and took him from his hiding place towards the palazzo. The weak escort was overpowered. Eridolfi and Atornabuoni hacked the Piagnone leader down in vengeance for their relations' death, and so the greatest citizen in Florence died unshriven in the street. Meanwhile, San Marco was gallantly defended. The bell was tolling to rally the Piagnoni, who, however, were isolated in the churches or in their houses in blank dismay. Women were gathered in the nave in prayer, while Savonarola stood before the altar, sacrament in hand, with his novices around him, expecting martyrdom, for the convent doors were burnt and the enemies crowding in. 
It was high time that the Signoria should interfere in the cause of order. All lay citizens were commanded on their allegiance to leave the convent within an hour. Further resistance was hopeless. Savonarola and Fra Domenico surrendered under promise of safe conduct. For the last time, the prior gathered the brethren in the library and besought them to abide in faith, in prayer, in patience. The officers led their prisoners out into the street and thence to the palace, through the surging, howling mob, spitting, kicking, and striking at its victims. On the following day, Fra Silvestro left his hiding place and was given up. From the moment of Savonarola's arrest, his execution became a necessity of state. Nothing else would satisfy the people who would otherwise have clamored for a proscription of his party. Nothing else would have healed the divisions among the governing class. The religious strife had not only cleft the city in twain, it was making her alliance worthless to any foreign power. The news of Charles VIII's death had arrived. It seemed certain that Pisa could only be recovered through the League, and this would give no aid while Savonarola thundered from the pulpit against the Pope. Exile was an alternative to death, but exile would have removed the danger to a foreign and almost necessarily hostile state. The Piagnoni would never rest, while there was a possibility of their leader's return. The Pope at once urged the transference of the prisoner to Rome. The government, as a reward for silencing the prophet, pressed for a tithe upon the clergy for the Pisan War. Florentine independence declined to play the sheriff's officer for Rome, and Savonarola's extradition was refused. As a compromise, the Pope sent commissioners to aid in his examination. The trial of the three friars lasted from April 9 until May 22. Their depositions and those of other citizens are not necessarily worthless because they were extracted under torture. Torture was invariably applied, and such a view would invalidate, for instance, the whole of the evidence on which the Medician conspirators were condemned. Savonarola was, however, a bad subject. His nervous, highly strung constitution, weakened by asceticism and anxiety, shrank from physical pain. Though never abandoning his duty, he had always been haunted by the fear of personal violence. He frequently referred to his providential escapes from the poison or the dagger of Ludovico il Moro, although successive governments devoted to the friar never contrived to arrest one of these Milanese agents with whom he believed Florence to be teeming. The prosecution admitted that Savonarola retracted the confessions made under torture, and these retractions are set down in black and white. Not all of the Florentine commission were pronounced enemies, and of the two papal commissioners, the general of the Dominicans, Turiani, had, until Savonarola's final act of disobedience, been his consistent friend. More difficult is the question of the additions, alterations, and omissions attributed to the notary Sercecioni, a renegade, 
although had this editing been absolutely unscrupulous, the confessions of the accused would have been more compromising. The depositions of Fra Domenico, whether in their original form or in the official copy, bear out the general authenticity of the evidence, as do even those of the hysterical somnambulist Fra Silvestro, who was believed by many to be more knave than fool, and with whom, it was suspected, the less scrupulous leaders of the Piagnoni conducted their political correspondence. The Florentine commissioners directed the examination mainly to the gift of prophecy and political relations. It was essential to extort from Savonarola a denial of his prophecies, for nothing would so effectually alienate the large numbers who still silently clung to him. At first, he stoutly asserted the divine origin of his gift, but under the strain of torture, he broke down, and henceforth his answers were contradictory or confused. He was perhaps at war within himself on this mysterious subject, on which even his pulpit utterances are not consistent. In his agony of mind, he now cried out that the spirit of prophecy had departed from him. The prosecution represented him as admitting that his alleged gift was an imposture, the result of ambition of the desire to be thought wise and holy. He strenuously denied that his prophecies were founded on confessions made to Fra Silvestro or himself. With regard to his interference in party politics, the depositions of the three friars were very colorless. It was the wish of the government to narrow the issue to San Marco, and not to mark leading citizens out for popular vengeance. Even those who were arrested and tortured were soon released. Not Savonarola's old aristocratic enemies, but the people, were the most vindictive. Parenti, whose own opinions are typical of the changes in public feeling, affirms that to satisfy the people and to save the heads of the Savonarola party, the government replaced four of the friars' judges, who might possibly be too favorable to his cause. The aristocracy could escape a revolution only by his condemnation. Valori and his associates, it was confessed, frequently visited the convent, as did other believers, high and low. The friars had heard their visitors speak of the prospects of the coming elections. Their prayers had been sometimes asked in the cause of righteousness, but there had been nothing in the nature of an electoral organization. Savonarola clearly avowed that he had supported the popular government, but had not meddled with its workings. Both he and Fra Domenico mentioned their design for a life gonfalonier, or doge. Their thoughts had naturally turned to Valori, but his violent and eccentric character made them hesitate. The excellent Giovanni Battista Ridolfi had been mentioned, but his large family connection might lead to the predominance of a single house. Savonarola had protested against the tendency to form an oligarchical ring within his party. In all this there was no implication of any political association, nothing to compel the Signoria to extend inquiry further. On the arrival of the papal commissioners, the examination turned on Savonarola's appeal to a general council. It was conducted chiefly by the Spanish lawyer Romolino, Bishop of Ilerda. 
Savonarola confessed that having no friend in Italy, he had turned to foreign princes, and especially to those of France and Spain. He hoped for the aid of Cardinals Brissonnet and Della Rovere, both enemies of the Borgia. Matthäus Lang, Maximilian's confidential adviser, afterwards Bishop of Gurk and Cardinal, had spoken ill of Alexander in the friar's presence, while the scandals of the Curia were odious to the Spanish sovereigns who could influence the Cardinal of Lisbon. In vain, the commissary pressed for evidence to implicate the Cardinal of Naples, for confessions extracted by torture were afterwards withdrawn. The victim declared that he had no wish to be Pope or Cardinal. His reward would be enough if by his agency so glorious a work as the reform of the Church could be effected. Extorted and garbled as they were, these depositions showed no proof, in Guicciardini's words, of any fault except ambition. And who can say that in his last agony, Savonarola himself may not have been conscious of past ambition, of the parasite which clings most closely to monastic walls? Pride was the fault which, from the first, Alexander the Sixth had fixed on his future enemy. The result of the trial was less the condemnation of Savonarola than that of the popular government on which he had pinned his faith. It would be vain to seek, under Medici or Albizzi, so violent a strain on the Constitution, so shameless a disregard for individual rights. It was pitiful that the free Constitution, the panacea against tyranny, should have been guilty of the worst crime with which Florence can be charged. Of physical or political courage there was none, save in the small band which, in the heat of fight, had held the convent. Only a short time before, the Milanese ambassador had assured his master that Savonarola controlled the great majority of the town. Yet now, no Piagnone dared mention his profit in the streets. The eight and the ten were known to have Savonarola's sympathies. In defiance of the most fundamental constitutional traditions, without even the pretense of a balia, they were dismissed before their office had expired. There was no protest from these lawfully elected bodies, and none from the council which had given them their commission. When the new signoria was elected, the well-known Piagnoni were forcibly excluded. The qualification for office became cowardice or party hate. The council itself suffered the garbled depositions to be read and did not insist on the appearance of the accused because a signoria, notoriously hostile, stated that he was voluntarily absent from fear of stoning. In the council, and in the magistracies, Savonarola, as was afterwards proved, must have numbered hundreds of secret adherents. Yet one citizen only, Agnolo Nicolini, dared to suggest that death should be commuted for perpetual imprisonment, so that posterity might not lose the fruits of the invaluable works which Savonarola might write in prison. The Florentine constitution was still a sham, there was still no correspondence between real and nominal power. The mandatories of the people were swayed by a ferocious faction, as they had been swayed by a cool-headed dynasty. 
It is small wonder that the hybrid constitution withered in the first fierce heat, that when a few thousand famished Spaniards rushed the walls of Prato, two audacious youths dragged the chief magistrate of the Florentine Republic from the Palazzo Publico and condescendingly gave him their escort to his home. In the sentence pronounced on May 22, 1498, Church and state concurred. Savonarola and his companions were declared heretics and schismatics because they had denied that Alexander was true pope and had compassed his deposition, because they had distorted scripture and had revealed the secrets of the confessional under the pretext that they were vouchsafed by visions. Against the state, they had sinned in causing the useless expenditure of countless treasure and the death of many innocent citizens, and in keeping the city divided against herself. Unity between the city and the Pope was now complete. Florence obtained the grant of three-tenths of church revenues, the price, observed the Piagnoni, of them that sold innocent blood was three times ten. Even to the three friars, Alexander sent his absolution. On the morrow came the end unfrocked and degraded by the archbishop's suffragan, condemned as heretics and schismatics by the papal commissaries, Savonarola and his brethren were handed over to the secular arm, the eight, who passed the formal sentence. Led from the ringhiera along a raised platform to the scaffold, they were hanged from the gibbet, and when life was extinct, the pile was lit. The boys of Florence stoned the bodies as they hung. Four years ago, they had stoned Piero de' Medici. Then, in an access of righteousness, they had stoned notorious sinners. Now they stoned their prophet. And lastly, they were to stone to death his executioner. The bodies were cut down into the flames, the ashes carefully collected and thrown into the Arno. The piazza had been thronged with onlookers, for whom barrels were broached and food provided at government expense. For the crowd it was a vast municipal picnic. The burning of the friars replaced the burning of the vanities, even as this had superseded the fireworks and pageants of the Medici. The horror of the tragedy lies not only in the character of the victims, but in its contrast to the high civilization of the city which destroyed them. From the rising and suppression of the Chompi until the fall of Piero, that is, in more than a century, no notable act of violence had been witnessed, save when the Signoria hanged from the palace windows, red-handed, the Pazzi conspirators who had murdered Giuliano de' Medici in the cathedral and attempted to storm the palace. The next four years, saw first the arson and bloodshed which followed Piero's fall, then the irregular condemnation of five chief citizens, then the storming of San Marco and the murder of Valori and his wife, and now the fever of political passion reached its climax in Savonarola's death. The republican experiment cost Florence very dear, alike in territory, blood, and treasure. The tragedy had become inevitable. It is never easy to screw up the moral standard of a people. 
Yet in Florence there was such a genuine and permanent element of what may almost be called Puritanism that had she stood by herself and enjoyed a period of profound peace, Savonarola's system might have been partially successful. It would have needed, perhaps, no very professional knowledge to administer the state. The good man might have been not only the good citizen, but the good ruler. The experiment was, however, tried at a crisis of peculiar complexity, when the elements of violence abroad and at home were unusually strong, when ethics and politics had least chance of fusion. For such a task, a novice in the art of government must needs prove unequal. He must consciously or unconsciously hand the reins to those who had the experience which he lacked. The Pope and the Duke of Milan doubtless hastened the catastrophe, and Savonarola was in a measure the victim of his party's foreign policy. Causes, however, should not be multiplied without reason, and within Florence there was cause sufficient for the tragedy. If she were a good subject for ethical reform, it was otherwise with politics. It is easier to change the constitution than the character of a people. The Florentines, said Guicciardini, possessed two characteristics in apparent contradiction, the love of equality and the desire of each family to lead. If the new constitution could satisfy the former, it could not assuage the latter. The influence of family rivalry was the vital distinction in the working of the Venetian and Florentine republics. At Venice, family jealousies rarely influenced the state. At Florence, they overmastered and corrupted public life. In vain, Savonarola, like San Bernardino before him, inveighed against the party nicknames which would surely bring back the horrors of the strife of Guelph and Ghibelline. He became himself the very subject of these factions. He could not shake himself free from a Valori or a Soderini. His opponents regarded him as the dangerous tool of the most ambitious of their rivals. To gain admirable ends, he was forced to work through agents who were compromised. Disavowing democratic principles, it was only a question of time to which branch of the aristocracy he would attach himself. His religious achievements might have been greater under the unquestioned rule of the Medici. This impossibility of detachment from family strife is the tragedy of Savonarola. He fell because he was believed to be Valori's tool. The Florentines perhaps exaggerated the closeness of his intimacy with the party chiefs. In his sermons on Amos and on Ruth, he implored his congregation to leave himself and his friars alone, and not to pester them with legislative proposals, with this or that man's candidature, questions for magistrates and citizens and not for friars. He repeated that he was no politician, that he had no finger in their government, nor in their foreign relations. Yet in these very sermons, he stated that he was accused of constant interference and the visits of the party leaders to San Marco seemed to support the accusation. His enemies, not unnaturally, thought that the midnight meetings of Medician days on the eve of elections had been but transferred from the palace in the Via Larga 
to the parlor of San Marco. Parenti describes in detail the passage of Valori's measures from their initiation in San Marco to their consummation in the council. The biographer Burlamaki incidentally gives some slight color to the charge of close intercourse with Valori, writing that Savonarola would not be interrupted in his prayers even when Valori called. The friar himself protested to the Pope in 1495 that he could not obey the call to Rome because the new government needed his daily care. The pulpit was performing the functions of the modern press. Its importance was heightened by the absence of debate in the assembly. If one party used this medium, the other was sure to follow. The pulpit of San Marco became the organ of the Piagnoni, that of Santa Croce, the organ of the Grandees. It is not easy to time precisely the flow and ebb of public opinion towards and away from Savonarola. So early as June 1497, a private letter written to Venice describes the populace as Medician, the citizens as inclined towards Milan. From the early spring of 1498, the feeling against him had been strong. His preaching while under excommunication had scandalized earnest disciples. The threats of interdict were doubtless a terror to many more. Florence was not prepared for a breach with the visible head of her church even at the bidding of her prophet. When the end came, the number of avowed supporters was not large. The pronounced Piagnoni, whom the government excluded from the council, numbered sixty at the most. The lower classes had long been turning. With them, Savonarola's constitution had found no place. They had lost the amusement and sense of importance which an occasional parlamento provided. The Puritanism, which replaced the extravagant splendor of Florentine festivities, entailed a diminution both of work and pleasure. Many of the poor were, of course, dependent on the great houses, most of which were opposed to Savonarola. The east end of Florence, the poorest quarter, had long been a Medician stronghold. Sooner or later, it must feel the loss of Medician charities. The great square of Santa Croce, the playground of the poor, missed the fetes which had drawn thither the beauty and fashion of Florentine society. Life had now left it for the religious centers of the cathedral and San Marco. Monti di Pietà and burnings of the vanities were poor substitutes for panis et circenses. From the great Franciscan church, the friars perpetually thundered against the rival Dominican. The Franciscans were, after all, the peculiar order of the poor, and they gradually regained the influence which the eloquence of Savonarola had temporarily filched away from them. The ordeal had decided all but zealous adherents, and the faith of these was widely, if only temporarily, shaken by the alleged confessions. This is clear from the piteous expressions of Landucci, who describes his grief and stupefaction at the fall of the glorious edifice built on the sorry foundation of lying prophecy, at the vanishing of the new Jerusalem, which Florence had expected, and from which were to issue a code and an example of holy living, the renovation of the church, 
and the conversion of the infidels. The disillusion was completed by Savonarola's silence at the stake, and by the divine refusal of a miracle to save him. Among thinking men, it is unlikely that Marsilio Ficino, the Platonist, and Verino, the humanist, should have been alone in deserting him, although they were no doubt the most distinguished of their class. It is needless to brand them as hypocrites and turncoats. Marsilio, at least, had led a blameless life. His devotion to Savonarola was of long standing. They had much in common in their speculative mysticism, in their groping after the unseen world. Marsilio was no politician. He could gain or lose nothing by the change of front, which he himself ascribed to the fierce family divisions produced by Savonarola's influence. The desertion of the prior by the brethren of San Marco must not be judged too harshly. Something was, doubtless, due to cowardice, the result of the fierce fight round the convent, but monastic life is subject to contagious waves of feeling. The belief might well run through the convent that its inmates had been befooled and duped by the saintly exterior and passionate eloquence of their prior. The reaction from the spiritual excitement raised by prophecy brings with it the abandonment of the very foundations of belief. To Savonarola's modern biographers, no language has seemed too hard for Fra Malatesta, who headed the apostasy, and who had witnessed Savonarola's signature of the depositions. But he, too, had borne a spotless character. He was a man of high birth, a canon of the cathedral, who from genuine devotion had joined San Marco, abandoning a fine income and the certainty of advancement. Men of this type may, in a moment of physical and spiritual disturbance, be weak, but they seldom then begin to be deliberately wicked. Even Fra Benedetto, who spent the rest of his life in restoring his master's memory, for the moment fell away. The passionate hatred which Savonarola had excited may seem hard to explain. It was otherwise with San Antonino, who had labored not less earnestly in the field of morality and religion, or with San Bernardino, who had found favor both with Guelph and Ghibelline. Saints are not necessarily unpopular. The cause may perhaps be sought in Savonarola's self-assertion in his perpetual use of the first person, in the reiteration of all that he had done for Florence, of all the prophecies that had been fulfilled or were to be fulfilled at the expense of those who would not listen. Whoever will force himself to read one of his more emphatic sermons from an opponent's point of view may find the key to the final verdict of the city. The child had grown into the man. Savonarola, had striven to break the wings of the foul bird, and the bird had struck him with its talons. He had lifted his rod to part the waters, and the Red Sea had overwhelmed him. The fascination which Savonarola exercised is almost as living today as it was when his congregation sat spellbound round him. The object of these pages has been to discuss his influence upon political and constitutional history but this is only one aspect of his career and to himself the least important he was perhaps no skilled statesman 
no wise political leader, but as a spiritual force whose influence long survived him, he has had few equals. Those who would study this side of his character must leave the chroniclers, the dispatches of ambassadors, and the biographies, and turn to his letters, his sermons, and his tracts, his zeal for righteousness, his horror of sin, his sympathy for the poor, his love of children, appeal to the earnest and loving of all ages. There is little question that, for most foreigners, certainly for those of the English-speaking race, the very thought of Florence centers in Dante, the exile of Ravenna, and in Savonarola, the alien of Ferrara. End of section 19. Recording by Linda Johnson.